0: Welcome to Cigar City Radio, episode number 59. I'm your host, Randy Ojeda, and making the magic happen, a man who certainly dares to be different, even if he doesn't intend to, Mr. Jason Solanez. <laughs> forget about it. Just totally forget about it. Yeah. Oh, man, see, you almost made it. You almost, almost did it. but I had to say something. The Cigar City Radio podcast is now available on Spotify. That's right. Spotify, in addition to music and videos, has now expanded into podcast offerings, and Cigar City Radio has been chosen, 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 chosen by Spotify to be part of their podcast selection. So if you go to the Spotify app and you type in Cigar City Radio, you will find not only the Cigar City Radio companion playlist, but now the Cigar City Radio podcast in full Every single episode. And, of course, you can also follow Cigar City Radio on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Cigar City Radio. Our guests on this episode are DJ Bird and producer-director Ellen Goldfarb. Ellen is the filmmaker behind Dare to Be Different, a look back at WLIR 92.7, the Long Island-based radio station that was on the cutting edge of music in the 1980s. Going rogue jason rogue okay the station would literally go to the airport and pick up the singles at the airport like from from imports you know from stuff sent overseas and then Mm -hmm. bring them back to the studio and spin them live like they just take it straight from the airport to the station how hardcore is that? That's the most hardcore. That's the that, that's, that's like dedication. That's as yeah, that's as hardcore as you get. So Dare to be different features, candid interviews, and rare archival footage of U2, Blondie, the Thompson twins, Duran Duran, Joan Jett, The Cure, Billy Idol, Depeche Mode, and many others. WLIR helped introduce most of these bands to a US audience and created a community around Punk and New Wave. They're instrumental to that entire scene. And of course, DJ Bird was one of the DJs at WLIR, and from listening to him, we could probably do another 50 episodes with just his stories, because he has quite a few of them. So our licensing director, Michelle, had some time to chat with DJ Bird and Ellen at the Et Cultura Festival in St. Pete, where the film was being screened. If you don't know Michelle, let me tell you, this was the perfect film for her to cover. She's from Long Island, and she practically breathes new wave. You can hear the excitement in her voice, and it's just a really awesome interview. Big thanks to Leah Umberger and Derek Horn from Eccultura for helping put this one together. Derek, if you're listening to this, you are awesome. You are very organized. Thank you for the most comprehensive emails. Never has anybody made it so easy to cover a film festival. So we appreciate you. And we appreciate you again, Michelle, for doing this interview. So if you want to learn more about the film, dare to be different, head to dtbd. The movie.com or look up their IMDb page. Again, it's dared to Be Different. So here it is, episode number 59.
1: But we don't really have FM radio in the way that it was when L.I.R. existed. We don't have we're seeing this regurgitation of top 40 hits or just contemporary stations, nothing that's producing new opportunities for bands to come out. Um, do you think that's lost on the digital world of Sirius XM or Spotify's or do you think there's an opportunity for FM radio to produce something like L.I.R. again?
2: The short answer is definitely there's an opportunity. What happened at L.I.R. was magic. Everybody seemed to be in the right place at the right time, and it all kind of came together. But it wasn't just the music. It was the lifestyle. It was the haircuts. It was the clothing. It was the audio equipment. It was the commercials. I mean, it all kind of tied together. What made LIR special and why it can happen again is, is a really long answer. I'll try and condense it for you. You had uh, a political feel. Margaret Thatcher in England, Ronald Reagan in, here in the States. And the young artists wanted to talk about and, and share their opinion on that. Now you've got Donald Trump and uh, what's her name in England? Uh, Theresa May. The young artists want to talk about that. But you used a, a very important term. You said the word band. When you turn on pop radio today, you have all these individual artists. And I'm not here to put them down. Selena Gomez is great. I've taken my girls to see Justin Bieber. And... But where are the bands? Now, I did take uh, my uh, youngest to Jacksonville to see Five Seconds of Summer. I'm sure they're kind of poppy and bubblegummy to some, but they're a band. And these kids out there are playing this music somewhere. Maybe it's in their garage, maybe it's on their computers, maybe they're sharing it. So I don't know what the business model is. I don't know how to monetize it. But is there an opportunity? Absolutely. Why it's not happening is all the radio stations are owned by the same people. They're all corporations. Corporations do not invent things. Dennis McNamara did. WLIR helped these artists who invented new sounds, who invented new visuals, who invented new concepts, new ideas, new discussions. That can happen again. Absolutely, you can do it, Michelle. I would love. I would
1: love to be the person that that brings that um, back to life. Yeah, let's. Is this table? Are we drawing up plans right now? This is awesome. <laughs> um, so. Uh, you mentioned that it can happen again and that it comes from something like the political revolution or this this revolution in general, whether it's political or if it's uh, we have these environmental issues, things like that, that people can stand up and say something and fight against what's going on. Um, the comparison that I loved is that you, you mentioned that there was somebody in Europe and there was somebody in our country. And what I loved about this documentary is that you focused on that it wasn't just Long Island. It was Long Island bringing... England over. It was bringing, you know, um, the the Germans, all of that. Yeah. And that it gave an opportunity for something to happen, but no one could really put their finger on it. I love that you brought up, or in the documentary brings up new wave, but no one really knows what new wave means. You know, it stems from, um, you know, like French new wave, or it's this new wave of artists. Um, But I love, there was a section where it breaks it down as Britain was post-punk, in America was this like art driven do you think it would be something similar, or because there's so much opportunity for artists to put their music on things like bandcamp or the Spotifys or these abilities to just put so much out, would we get something that was more eclectic or would we still have something that was broken down to these regions or do what, what do you think the future of a potential revolution of music might look like? Is it going to be widespread? Is it going to be something that points out these general areas? Or uh, what, what do you think, being in the, being in the business?
2: We're, it depends on who decides to take the reins and run with it. If you have a visionary like Dennis, then what you're going to end up with is what we did. And, and be, forgive me, because you're too young to have experienced it, But the term new wave doesn't apply. I know you think it does, and I know a lot of people... Dennis refused and didn't like that phrase. It was new music. And what new music meant was Bob Marley. So we had reggae artists, ska artists, rockabilly, the Stray Cats, who was originally from uh, Massapequa, Long Island, made it big in England and then came back over with their hits. You had that punk, whether it was the Pistols or the Clash or the Ramones. You had... The, the wavy music of the Flock of Seagulls and, and China Crisis and the synthesizer movement, you had all these different sounds. So in the same hour, you heard 19 different styles of music. Why can't you do that again today? Why do you have to turn on 99.1 and hear the same type of hip-hop? Change the station to hear the same kind of country. Why can't you go to one station and hear the best new music first? Why not dare to be different? Because that's what we did at LIR.
1: That was awesome. Yeah, that was, I I feel very, very, very inspired. (laughs) Um, So we mentioned, or you had just mentioned a few bands that kind of were the highlights of these different parts of what LIR represented. Um, This question's for you, Ellen. How did you choose to showcase a certain music that was showcased in there? Um, The first song that pops in is In Between Days by the Cure. And um, I had turned my head for a second to start writing notes and when I heard that I was like, oh I'm in one hundred percent. So how did you how did you choose, you know, which songs were gonna be featured and um, you know the pairing of the music videos with that as well.
3: You know, making a documentary is a very creative process. It really is. And I have so many bands and so many songs that I love, you know, and that I'd love to put in. And seriously like we were creating this movie as it went on and as we were shaping, you know, the story because the cut you saw is, like, we've had, like, 20 versions of this movie. So there were other songs in the movie that had to be cut, but, like, there was... It was really a creative process. Like, I just, like, went into my brain and said, okay, we need to put this song in here. Or, you know, as the story flowed, I said, okay, let's try this song, you know, and it, and they worked. Like, And some of them, you know, were like, we, we would cut and paste, hit or miss. Oh, maybe it didn't work. And I was like, okay, I know what we got to put in there. Try this one. And um, I guess it was from my love of music that I really was able to do, you know, the music selections. But I'll tell you, it was hard because there were so many songs that I wanted to put in the movie that didn't make it into the movie but it is what it is and we also wanted to make sure we appeal to a wide audience because as you were saying you know this is a it's a long island based movie but it's not because it talks about a long island radio station and what happened on long island but it was really a movement and it was an era and as i'm seeing going to all of these different film festivals across the country people are appreciating it in every state and every city because eventually there were other LIRs popping up around the country and eventually after LIR and like KRQ in L.A., there were other stations popping up where people were able to be exposed to this music. It may have been five years later, but eventually, and, and the rise of MTV, but this music is with us forever. You know, this, this was a very passionate, loving time, the 80s. It was a celebration of a really great era, and that was my goal. It was to make it a celebration.
1: No, that was a great answer, and I would say that your goal was definitely achieved. Um, the, the idea that you had so many songs and to pick a few to, to kind of move the film through... I think it does well because it, was, it wasn't a backtrack. It's not like a scene where you're supervising and you just have a track to kind of guide the narrative along. This was something that was almost like a, uh, a page flipper. It was to the next chapter or the next thing that we were going to talk about. And it flowed so well that it almost felt like we were going through this decade with LIR. We were moving with them. So I would say very successful. Um, to the, to the songs that you chose and, as you mentioned, moving from, you know, state to state around the country for these festivals, um, you're noticing that, yeah, it's not just a Long Island thing. It influenced so much. You brought up MTV and how LIR kind of set this tone for MTV, almost gave MTV this. Yeah, yeah.
2: I sat next to J.J. Jackson during uh, the cult's first United States. No, it wasn't their first. It was their first appearance supporting the love record, but they had yet uh, been signed to an American deal. So they were still on Beggar's Banquet. And J.J. Jackson tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, we listen to you guys so we know what to play. And I said, J.J., I watch you guys, I know it. So to hear him say that and admit that, and this has got to be what, 1983. We knew. People were paying attention. Now, you mentioned something earlier about the different cities. I happened to have been lucky enough to get uh, selected by Dennis McNamara to go to Pittsburgh. We owned a second station, WXXP. So what happened at WLIR happened in Pittsburgh. 100.7 WXXP, Pittsburgh station that dares to be different. They never heard Squeeze. They never heard more than one U2 song before I got there. They never heard Depeche Mode, The Cure, The Cult, The Clash. I mean, we brought it all there. And it, this happened in real time. This wasn't five years later because of MTV. It happened along with simultaneous to WLIR. So what you're talking about happened. And that's why what you mentioned earlier, it can happen again.
1: Awesome. That's, that's great. Um, and I, I like that, that there's this optimism that it can happen. And, and it almost feels like it's going to happen. Yeah. It-
2: I'm calling it the next wave. The next wave is happening because music has always been cyclical. If you can go back as far as you want, and the kids' parents hated the music their kids listened to, whether it was the Beatles, Elvis, you can go on and on, The Stones, and you finally get up to, you know, our music. My dad's sitting not too far from me. I had him come on the air to do a Screamer of the Week promo for Bourgeois Tag. He still doesn't know who they are or what the song was. He didn't like our music. To him, it wasn't music. So that's, that's happening today. I have kids. They're 15 and 17, and they're listening to what's happening today. Today's music isn't directed at my dad. It's not directed at me. It's directed at the kids, and the kids are running the show. And the, the artists have opinions, and they have important things to say about what's going on in the world. You mentioned the environment. You mentioned politics. It's beyond that. It's art. It's their art. And they need a way to express it. Somebody's got to grab the reins, and just take it forward. And there's a way to make money off it too. But it was never about money. It was about art.
1: That's a really good point, and um, I like that you bring up that it's not about money. I think a lot of the times you think, you know, rock stars, or, you know, or we can put it in the perspective of the music that's listening to now. I mean, Katy Perry does an arena tour, sells out, and everything, but maybe doesn't sell a hundred million records or something. Where. People think that I think it. the objective is to maybe make a ton of money, be famous and everything. But in this day and age, I feel like it's much harder now to make the money than you would have before. Um, and I feel like, uh, and I could be wrong, but I feel like it meant more back then too if you had 100 million records or something like that because people were physically going out and buying something. It wasn't a digital stream. It wasn't an iTunes
2: download. Keep in mind... And and, and some of your listeners aren't going to understand what I'm saying, but when you bought an album, you immediately opened it. You cut school that day because it was your favorite band and you opened it to read the liner notes, to look at the pictures. You could touch it. You could feel it. And if it was one of those double albums, that was special because you were going to use that to get the seeds out. Never mind. It was all good. You got it. Thank you. Um, your collection of records, which evolved into your collection of CDs, and by the way, I was the first person to do a four-hour show on WLIR where every song came off a CD. Our CD player came from Crazy Eddie in a trade. And you remember, Crazy Eddie's prices were insane. This, I'm not saying that, that today the technology is different. The business model is broken. You used to... Make money selling records, and you went on tour to support it. So you'd pay 10 bucks to see your favorite band, and then you'd go out and buy their album. Now, you're buying their album for 99 cents, or at least your favorite single. You're buying the album uh, on the cheap, or you're downloading it for free, and then you're paying 125 bucks to go see them. So you're making money touring instead of making money creating art. That's gonna change. What the technology is, and again, what the business model is, I don't know. You're going to figure that out. And when you do, let me know, and I'll help.
1: I'm feeling a lot of pressure. I feel like i I got I to gotta start this revolution. <laughs> um, no, that's, that's a really great um, perspective. I think um, Chris and I both are nostalgia-driven um, fans. We are much younger, but um, I still buy records, and I, I have vinyl. I have vinyl. It is. And that's, that's, I uh, would like to consider myself, this might be pretentious, but I like to consider myself um, one of the millennials that had the equal blend of that analog life and the digital life. So yes, I might be glued to my phone or I like the convenience of email. I love Twitter. I love social media, but there's something tangible in the things of my past or the things of someone else's past that I can take over and, and kind of, I feel like I can learn more from something tangible. So I still buy DVDs and Blu-rays or I have a VHS collection. I have cassettes, I have CDs, I have vinyl records. And, um, for me, it's, it's that part of history that I can still have a part of, I guess. I, um, I have the cure. I have multiple albums of the cure. I have, um, the Smiths, um, I have uh, the English beat. I have, um, yeah, I have um, a Berlin record. I have um, Thompson Twins. So for me, the music featured in this album or in this uh, this documentary was everything to me. Like I missed out on living in the '80s, but I always make a joke that if I could go back in time, I would be my age now and I would live between '83 and '88. Imagine,
2: for me, on a Tuesday night, my job was to walk on stage and say, please welcome the Thompson Twins. To me, that was Tuesday. That's so great. <laughs> and the following night, somewhere in New York, Joan Jett and the Blackhearts were playing, and I'd have to walk out on stage and say, please welcome Joan Jett and the... It was our job. It, and we loved it. We lived it. That's what we did. And I think the reason this film captures that the essence of what was taking place so well, and Ellen did such a fantastic job, is... It's not about what I did. It's not about what Dennis McNamara did. It was about what the listeners did on a daily and nightly basis. They called into the station, they listened to the station, and then they went out and they bought the records. I think, um, if I remember the statistic correctly, WLAR listeners per capita bought 25 albums per year. That squashed every single other radio station it was nowhere else even close because they were going out and buying the Cure record you own now. The Berlin 12-inch that you liked, that you own now, everybody was buying it back then. The big deal was on Friday they got you know, their money from working at the pizza place or McDonald's and they were running to Sam Ash or some of the other great record stores. But we used to get the imports, and I'm sure you saw the scenes in, in the movie, right off the plane. It wasn't long between us playing them and all the stores carrying them and all the listeners running out and buying them to hold them, to play them for their friends, to, to maybe tick off their parents by playing yeah, them I loud.
3: Slip disc or slip disc. I used to go there, yeah. I forgot, forgot that where that was. It was somewhere on the island, but the, yeah, there were so many. And uh, actually, there weren't that many. It was, you know, there were just the few that we all knew about, and then we would go. And when LIR would break a song, we would go to those stores because that's where you got I mean, we didn't have Amazon, you know. We couldn't upload on Pandora. I mean we you know, we didn't have Spotify. You had to go to these stores and buy the 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 seven inch or whatever it was and And that's how, you know, that's how we got it. Or you would just, you know what I would do? I had my little tape recorder, and I put, I would get 90-minute, you know, those tape, MRX tapes, whatever, cassette tapes. And I taped the radio station, but I didn't care if I got the DJs and the uh, commercials. I wanted that because I went to college after I graduated in 1983 from high school. I went to college upstate New York four hours away, and we didn't have LIR, so I wanted to, you know, not miss anything. So I would tape 90-minute tapes, 120-minute tapes, and bring them up to college and just play the whole thing. I mean, that's how
1: passionate L.A.R. fans were. I'm like, I'm so mad that uh, I wasn't born earlier because, yeah, because I feel like I feel like that's what I do now. I just have the luxury of so many devices that allow me to listen to music. So, yes, I still buy I might buy the record or whatever, but I can't take that record with me to work or something. I can't put it in my car and drive with it. So. The streaming and, and things like that help. And Sirius XM radio is incredible for curating. You know, First Wave is probably the most played station on my Sirius XM. So, yeah, it's, it goes between XMU and and First Wave. So, um, here's the difference. So,
3: the difference, and, and I listen to First Wave and a few of the other stations on Sirius as well. And Larry, thank God Larry's on there. But um, the difference that we experience versus what you're experiencing is that. I was able to call the radio station and talk to the DJs or somebody on the airline. I was able to vote for Screamer of the Week, you know, and it was a live contest. And, like, it, you were part of it. I was able to call and say, hey, where is Larry the Duck going to be tonight? Or what's the cool club? What's happening where? It was It was the social media of its time, but it was dj to listener contact which is missing in radio now you know and that's what made it so special they were our that was our family those were our djs and we really lived it along with them you know we we were able to you know win contests win prizes win tickets to our favorite show i mean that's what's missing
1: yeah, no, I would I would agree, and um, I had mentioned, I think before we started recording, um, that uh, you had mentioned you just recorded your the episodes, and you would take them with you, and that's how I discovered this music was tapes laying around from an uncle that got to experience it, and I, I think I was maybe five or six, early 90s, and so it was right after everything had just happened, grunge was the thing, and um, grunge was primarily the soundtrack of my youth or my, my growing up, but I picked up a few tapes and, uh, listened to them. And I was like, what is this? What is this, this really sad song? Why is it moving to me? What is this really upbeat? Was that a synthesizer? What is a synthesizer? What does that mean to me? You know, it wasn't, you know, my mom, I would say my mom was more on the pop end of things. So I knew the Cindy Lauper's, I knew things like that. You know, um, I, I, I love that in the, um, hello. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I love that you, there's a clip of Rick Astley for a second and, uh, yeah, you know, and there's these definitive songs of the eighties that I think people think of. And I feel like it sits somewhere around 85 and 86 is when people think of the eighties, they're thinking of like that pivotal year in, in, in music. But, um, I, that's how I discovered it. So it's, it's crazy to hear that, you know, somebody actually did that, you
2: know, cause it's, it's
1: unfathomable to think of my uncle doing it, but. I don't mind me adding to
2: that. One of my favorite uh, stories about the making of this movie is there was a, a United States Marine. His name is Jim Merther. He's featured in the film very, very short and I think uh, in the original cut, he's the last name you see when the credits roll and finish. Um, he and I met online. I used to play ice hockey and I, I had a website where I talked about ice hockey and that's how we met. About three or four years into our online relationship, he discovers I'm DJ Bird from WLAR. And flips out. <laughs> and I get this really weird e- email where he claims while he was in the Marine Corps and deployed and doing dangerous work, the way he and his buddies kept saying was his cousin sent him tapes of my show where he heard Amok from Lederknocken and the cult and the cure and the Smiths and I could go on and on. And that's when we connected that way. It blew me away. And this is added to, I heard stories of a German DJ in a German nightclub who recorded my show and played it. Commercials and talking and all. How you would do that in a nightclub, I don't know. But they loved it, and I kept hearing about it. To hear these stories, as Ellen was describing, of of the dedication and listening the way they did, taping it with their little cassette recorders... And hit and pause so they didn't have to hear the Crazy Eddie commercial. But waiting for that favorite song to come on, whatever the screamer was, and then hit and record. I'm, I hear these stories all the time, and to, to get an email like that, it's still it's 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 humbling.
1: I, I can imagine, and I mean, the we we touched on it lightly how you know the influence it had on MTV, the influence it had on other radio stations opening up. Um, but look at it today. The influence it has on everything today. I mean it brought these artists to light it exposed it to people, but those people became other artists became other band members and there's a part in the documentary that talks about interpol kind of name drops interpol as a band <laughs> and there's there's you know you hear it in these influence the killers you know you it's it's such a strong influence, and maybe if we if i mean I would say we know so it's nothing to us, but these people wouldn't know, you know, who these artists are or maybe the killers wouldn't exist or Interpol wouldn't exist if joy division didn't, if new order never made it to America. And, um, the cut that we have, I don't know if it changes in the final cut, we will be finding out, but, um, there's, it says, so there's, there, there's a little bit of, um, informative at the end, right before the credits. And it mentions 700 artists, uh, L I R
3: final cuts, not that different. We just had to, so we, just had to kind of clean up a few things and we had to add in a different song and cut back on one song and we just it's really it's much tightened up now than from what you saw it's uh, (laughs) um, yeah but one of the things you know one of the things I definitely wanted to make sure I touched on in the film was how it did influence bands of today you know so that this generation can understand where the influence came from and uh, so yeah I'm glad you picked up on that I
2: want to add to that, if you don't mind. Because there's something, at least for me, that was very special about what took place, and that's Live Aid. If you remember that section of the film, what Live Aid was, in addition to some of the other more famous pop stars that appeared, was our artists, Paul Young and and Bono. Those 13 minutes, that two-song set is the most famous two-song set in world history. You two went from... Being a, a really good band, to be in the greatest band in the world that day. What I'm getting at here is our artists, the ones that we championed, the ones that we helped discover and bring to America and bring to the listeners of LIR and all those other stations like uh, uh, K Rock in LA and the others, got together to help people. They use their talent and their art not just to make money, not just to make themselves famous kind of like what we did at LIR, to help people. And after Live Aid, now somebody falls down a flight of stairs and there's a benefit concert. We influenced that. That was part of what we did, and that's something I'm really proud of.
1: Yeah, it's, it is incredible. And, yeah, if you, it, you hear Live Aid, it doesn't matter if you're, I think, 16 years old or 60 years old. I feel like everybody knows exactly what that was and what that did for.
2: The Boomtown Rats take the stage. And he's singing, I don't like Mondays, and he stops at that one part about something about I don't want to die. Everyone in the place and everybody in the world who is watching knew right at that second, I need to help these kids that are dying in Africa. That's, that's something that, that we can all be proud of, that we were part of. Because from that point forward, artists understood their power and their influence, and it wasn't just about making money, it was about helping people. And that, to me, is what I took away, not just from the film, but the experience of living it. We help people.
1: Yeah, um, and I, th- that makes me want to ask, um, I mean, you can, you can go back to that moment, you can hear these songs, and it can take you back to this era, this time that you guys lived. How do you feel as one of the instruments of, of making this happen? You know, that moment you just described of... Of everybody realizing, no, we have to do something about these things that are going on. And these artists saying, we are the way that this can happen. We could be these voices. We could be this example. As as somebody working at LIR, knowing that you are catapulting this or allowing the, or helping this become a thing and become what it is, how does it feel? Do, today to know that that you were an instrument in that that you're somebody that if it's even the tiniest part of it um does that i mean does it how does that feel i guess uh,
2: there are three bands that i'm very closely associated with the ramones and to to be able to say that i was friends with Joey ramone is one of the more humbling things uh, you every other radio and television commercial features a ramone song Every sports arena plays a Ramon song. Joey would be spinning in his grave if he knew this. Because he always, they, they wrote a song uh, called We Want the Airwaves. And they never got the credit that they deserved. They never got the airplay and pop radio that they deserved. And now they're in like fragrance commercials. It's Joan Jett and the Blackhearts. Um, even Joni is featured in, in television commercials. I don't know if you're aware of that. She, she covered the uh, Mary Tyler Moore theme song and for ESPN, I think it was. And I still hear that featured in TV commercials. Bad Reputation was featured in a TV commercial. Um, and then there's you too. And uh, if any other rock star were to take his Lamborghini and get drunk and smash it into a wall, you wouldn't even blink an eye. But this guy goes and meets the Pope and presidents and forms these corporations to help people. So how does it feel to be part of all of that? It's the most humbling experience after all these years to look back and think, Dennis McNamara walked into Paris, New York, and said, here's my card. Call me. I want you on my team. It's, I was blessed. I still am. And. I am so happy that Ellen decided seven years ago, I think she sent me an email and said, do you have any interest in being part of this? And Dennis and I had had, had all these conversations over the years of, somebody should make a movie about what we did. It was kind of cool what we did. And Ellen made it. I've seen it at the Tribeca Film Festival in Manhattan. It, whatever changes you've made, I'm excited to see. But wow, to see my life and the life of uh, many of my friends and and people I admired, whether it was Elvis Costello or Bono or anybody, Joey Ramone, to see that go across the screen and it's now there for the rest of the world to see, it's awesome.
1: And then Ellen, how does it feel to be able to to do that, to bring that to all of us, uh, to give LIR the the second life it really didn't get a chance to have?
3: Um, You know, I was just at the Gold Coast International Film Festival, which was on Long Island, I. Flew from there to here and you know that's you know where it happened and uh, we had three sold out screenings we sold out to like almost 750 people saw it and you could really see the love you know there I mean we're getting great responses everywhere but you know Long Island is Long Island and that's where it was and I mean the love for this station and the love of the DJ I mean first of all the DJs hadn't seen each other in years so I really brought everyone back together. And um, that makes me feel really, really good. Dennis, who hadn't spoken about LAR for many, many years because he...
2: They just weren't public. Okay.
3: Well, he didn't have public conversations about LAR for many years because what he told me was he didn't want to talk about it. He felt for many years that he was a failure because LAR went off the air. Now, LAR... And, it going off the air, as you'll see in the movie, it had nothing to do with Dennis. But he worked so hard and tried so hard to keep it alive that he personally felt responsible. And I think because of all of the interviews we did, all the love that came out making this film, everyone coming out saying how important Dennis was, how important it was, all the artists giving him, you know, accolades, saying how, how important he was. Really made him realize, wow, I really did make a difference in this world. And I feel like I've changed his life and I've changed many lives. And you know what? All the money in the world doesn't, that, that's priceless. You change people's lives. That's priceless. And that means so much to me. And the fact that I made this film for all the fans and it's not just my film. It's all of our film and we can have it forever now. And we can always remember L.I.R. It's just like I said it's priceless. I I just feel I feel honored that I was the one to do it. Although I don't know how I did it. It was my calling. Somebody up there above told me you've got to make this and keep going and I was very persistent and you know we had our ups and downs and we had to raise money and it, you know we had to get investor. I mean, it took a lot to make this film. It was not easy. But I was tenacious and I did it and I just had to see it through and I couldn't disappoint The DJs, I couldn't disappoint Dennis, and the fans, and here we go. So up and onward. Thank you.